Dotty, Dotty plays with Jane. Jane plays with Willie. Willie is happy again. Suki plays with Leo. Sasha plays with Brit. Adolf builds a bonfire. Enrico plays with it. Hello, and welcome to the Quarter to Three Games podcast for February 25th, 2016. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Arcanum. That was a uh, computer RPG from... Dadgummit, I should have looked this up. The folks that made that Bloodlines vampire game... Ugh, I suck at computer RPGs. I apologize. But I bring up Arcanum because this week I'm going to be speaking with the creator of a steampunk-themed board game called Clockwork Wars. Uh, And Arcanum was steampunk, wasn't it? Yeah. So, uh, in case you haven't figured out by now, this is going to be a board gaming episode. Uh, I apologize if you're not into board games. Stick around anyway, you might hear something interesting. And those of you who are into board games, uh, I think you'll enjoy my conversation with Hassan Lopez, which will be up in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you about the three most important rules in board game design. Now, I don't make board games, but I play a lot of them. And like anybody who plays a lot of them, I can sit here in my chair and pontificate about what makes a good game and what doesn't, and what developers should do and shouldn't do. I've even entertained this idea of writing uh, like a a Ten Commandments of Board Game Design, uh, which sounds incredibly pompous and presumptuous. Uh, People who make board games would know far better than me about uh, what sorts of things are required. But there are certain things I look for in board games. And if I were to do a Ten Commandments of board games, it would basically be an expression of, hey, these are the things Tom Chick wants out of a board game. Uh, So if I were to do these Ten Commandments, I'm going to briefly tell you the top three commandments. I think the commandments go in order. You'd think I would know this. I did a lot of biblical studies for my... uh, my education, uh, and I think the commandments... Actually, no, that's not the case. Are the commandments like a top ten list? Like, number one, it's thou shalt not kill, right? Like, number one's the most important. Number ten is the least important. So if you're going to fudge on the commandments, you know, fudge the, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten area. Don't break those first three. I could be completely off base there, but if I were to do ten commandments of board gaming, I would put them in order. And here would be my top three commandments. Number three, pacing. Get your pacing right. Number two, pacing. Like I said, get your pacing right. And the number one commandment when you're making a board game, pacing. Get your pacing right when you're making a game. So apologies to uh, stealing from the three rules of real estate. Uh, location, location, location. My three rules of board game design, pacing, pacing, pacing. It is what I personally look for uh, above all else. Maybe not to the exclusion of all else. I certainly play some games that are poorly paced. But it's what I appreciate most in board game design. Partly because of the group with whom I play. uh, And partly because I feel one of the most important commodities for... You know, once you're out of school and you're not just faffing around, wasting summers or whatever, time is very important to you. And I think what I resent most about a board game, any game actually, is when I feel like it's wasting my time. 
I'm here to be entertained, to be challenged, uh, not to sit and wait, not to have to spend time figuring obtuse things out. Um, so for me, pacing is what I really want in a game because I also hate bringing a new game out to my, my group and seeing, oh, they're all bored, nobody's into this, uh, often because the game is failing to hold their attention. Um, and that, by the way, is why you find a lot of board games are limited to four players. You know, you might have five people gathering one night, and there's a bunch of things you want to play, and you're checking out the boxes, and you're like, oh, which of these supports five? Which of these supports four? Oh, this one doesn't go up to five. Generally, those games don't go up to five players, not because it would be too expensive to print a fifth tableau, or print additional pieces for a fifth player, or make more room on the board for a fifth player. A lot of games, I would say most games that only support four players, only support four players because if you add a fifth player, you are forcing additional downtime on everyone else. And downtime is something that most board game designers know they don't want their players to deal with. Um, because most board game designers know that it, it is their job to keep the player's attention. It's not the player's job to pay attention. I mean, the player should pay attention, but if you've made a good board game, you do not leave it up to the player. He is not responsible for paying attention on his own. The board game should do that. Uh, so generally, here are some approaches to pacing that I really appreciate with some, some concrete examples I'm going to give you. Uh, the best way, one of the best ways, the easiest way, I should say, to keep the pacing up in a board game uh, is to just offer short turns. You know, in a game where you move your pieces and you calculate movement costs and you roll dice for combat and you're drawing cards on your turn to see what happens. If you have all that to do and a player who just went is waiting for you to finish and it's going to go through two other players before it's his turn, he's going to check out. Especially, by the way, if it's a game where the board game state will change so much by the time it gets around to him that there's really no incentive for him or her to pay attention. Uh, so short turns is a great way around that. And one of my favorite examples is a grand strategic level World War II board game called Quartermaster General. Uh, Quartermaster General only supports six players. Uh, so once you take your turn, five other people have to take their turns before you get to go again. But the beauty of Quartermaster General is that for all of its grand strategic scale, all you ever do on your turn is play a card. Follow the simple instructions on the card, and then your turn is done. Uh, furthermore, because it is World War II, there are two sides, the good guys and the bad guys, otherwise known as the allies and the non-allies. Uh, this The turns are structured so that it alternates one side every other turn. The Germans go, then the British, then the Russians, then the Americans, and then the... No, yeah, no, no. Uh, well, at any rate, yeah, Germans, British, Italians. That's who I forgot. It's real easy to forget the Italians, by the way, when you're talking about world wars. Uh, so the Italians go, then the Russians, then the Japanese, finally the British... I'm screwing that up. No, finally the Americans. At any rate, <laughs> the point being... Once you've taken your turn, you then are going to see what the other side is going to do in response to your turn. So Quartermaster General is a super snappy game for how the turns alternate and for how concise and discreet 
and important your actions are on any given turn. Uh, another way to keep pacing up is to make sure that something that, that a player does is relevant to everyone else at the table. And this is something actually I've, I've, I've half seriously, half jokingly said that we have only discovered how to make good board games in the last 10 years. That anything before 2006, there was no good board game design before then. And I kind of mean that in that a lot of these earlier games, I feel, have been obsoleted by more recent uh, designs. I, I personally feel there's no reason to play Puerto Rico when you have other games like that that have kind of displaced it. Settlers of Catan? Oh, don't even get me started. Um, even things like Kalos, like an early worker placement game. No reason to play that when there are better worker placement games. Dominion, this deck-building game. Far better deck-building games out there than Dominion. Uh, so one of the early things that we started to discover back in the olden days of board gaming of like 2002 uh, are, are ways to make a player's action relevant to everyone. And Puerto Rico is a great example of this because when you take a turn in Puerto Rico, you are choosing amongst different offices. Excuse me, taking a drink there. And whatever office you choose is going to be an action you get to do. And then all the other players, based on your action, get a kind of a, a miniature version of that action. So when it's my turn, if I choose the trader or the harvester or the uh, uh, whatever other offices there are in Puerto Rico, everyone cares because everyone is going to get to do something based on what I choose. Uh, Settlers of Catan, by the way, horrible game. Um... But one of the things it does is when it's my turn, I roll a die. And every territory that matches that die produces goods. So even though I may not have a turn for three turns, every time someone goes, he or she rolls a die, it might be relevant to me. I might be making, you know, sheep or stone or wood or whatever. Uh, one of my favorite recent versions of this, a way to trick the other players into paying attention when it's not their turn, uh, is, a, is a clever a cleverly themed game about underwater kingdoms called Abyss. Uh, I think this is an Asmodee game. Uh, although now that Asmodee has acquired Fantasy Flight, pretty much everything is an Asmodee game, right? Uh, but Abyss, when it's my turn, one of the things that I do, I should say Abyss is basically a set collection kind of game where I'm trying to collect sets of cards and I cash those in for actions uh, to... to to hire heroes that earn me victory points. It, Abyss is pretty good. But one of the cool things it does is on my turn, when I am gathering cards, you do what's called scouting. That's just the word for it. And you flip over a card and you put it on the board. And starting with the player at the left, you don't get that card, by the way. First of all, it has to go around to everyone at the table, and they get to choose, hey, do I want that card? So I flip over a card. Everyone goes around the table and says whether or not they want it. If it comes around to me and I don't want it, I flip over another card. Everyone around the table gets to decide if they want it. This happens on my turn. It happens on the player's turn after me, the player's turn after me. So once I've done my turn, when it's the next guy's turn to go, he or she is flipping cards over, and I get to look and watch and decide whether or not I want these cards. So Abyss is another example of a game where my action is relevant to everyone at the table. Uh, another way around pacing to keep players' attention is when it is not your turn, 
some games will give you a, uh, a responsibility, something that you have to do, you have to keep track of. Uh, this is sort of a, 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 this is a gimmick, this is like a trick. Uh, there's a recent game we've played called Legends of the American Frontier, where you uh, do these kind of card battles. You play cards to build up a value, and you need a certain number, and then the deck gets dealt cards that add to your number that might help you. It's an unknown quantity, so you're never 100% sure if you're going to beat a, a... Well, sometimes you can be, but it, you're never 100% sure whether or not you might get enough extra points to defeat a challenge. If you overpay, sure, you'll defeat it, but sometimes you can't quite get there, and cards get dealt from the deck. So Legends of the American Frontier stipulates... This is completely optional, and we end up not doing it, because I end up doing it all the time myself, that the player before you, who just went, he or she is the dealer. That person's the one who has to flip the cards over. Um, so when it's not your turn, when you've just gone, it's your job to be the dealer. Uh, and it's not quite that simple, but the idea being, hey, this duty rotates around the table, you have to pay attention as the dealer. Uh, my favorite example of this kind of thing there is a putatively cooperative game, and it's not at all, by the way. It's super competitive because everyone has a secret agenda. Uh, a game called Dead of Winter, about a fro uh, an icy zombie apocalypse. And in Dead of Winter, uh, this is published by Plat Hat Games, and they consider it the first in what they're calling the Crossroads series. It's not much of a series because there's only one game in it so far, but the consistent theme, supposedly, amongst Dead of Winter and other upcoming games in the Crossroads series are Crossroads cards. Crossroads cards are ways to keep a player paying attention, even when it's not his turn. So, for instance, I've gone, I've taken my turn, it goes to the next player. While she's taking her turn, what I'm supposed to do is draw the top card of the Crossroads deck. And I read at the top, there's a little bit of italics that I read, not to everyone else, I read it personally, just to me. And that tells me, if the player who's taking her turn, if she does this particular action, I then say, stop! And then I read the rest of the card. And it presents her with a challenge, or, or an opportunity, uh, or, or an obstacle. It's a little bit of theming, like uh, she might run into guys with guns who offer to give her the guns if it adds to the victory points at the end of the game that she needs. Or it might be a supply crate that's dropped, and if she wants to risk one of her characters, she can go out and collect it. Or maybe we have to take a vote to exile one of the members of the colony, uh, and she can decide whether or not we propose the vote. Um, so crossroads cards mean that when I'm not taking my turn, after I've just gone, I have to look at this little card and pay attention to what that person is doing. It'll say something like, hey, if a survivor moves to the gas station, or uh, if so-and-so is present at the colony, um, or if a survivor rolls for frostbite, you know, then read this, a this, this uh, action, this, this event. Um, so the, these crossroad cards... Uh, and some of them, by the way, I hate this one personally. There's one that says, and I think there's only one like this in the deck. I should find that stupid thing and take it out and rip it up. There's one that says, if the player yawns during his turn, read the following text. So you draw that, and you're supposed to be watching to see if they yawn. I, I have no business. I, I have no patience for that silliness. Uh, fortunately, it's only one of about, I don't know, 100 cards. I've actually never seen it. No, it has come up in the game, but it, it's never actually been triggered. Um, 
So another way to keep players invested, to keep their attention when it's not their turn, force everyone to use a common pool of resources. You know, what I use to take my turn is what everyone uses to take his or her turn. So there's a game we played recently called Grand Austria Hotel. Uh, this is just an example that's occurred to me. I'm sure there's other examples. But at the beginning of a, of a, of a, of a round, of a phase, of a, of a turn, you roll a bunch of dice. And then it goes around to each player, typical round-robin style, and he takes a die from it to do an action. He takes, And then the next person takes a die. So you're all looking at this pool that's depleting, and you're all invested in what's left over when it comes around to you. Uh, a better example of this is a game called Troyes. Or, or, I don't know, It's a French name. It's spelled Troyes, so we, we call it Troyes. Uh, where you roll dice at the beginning of your turn. Those are your pieces that you have to use on your turn. But the central twist in Troyes is that you can use each other's dice. And in fact, often will need to use each other's dice. So... If it's not my turn, I'm eyeballing everyone else's dice and thinking about maybe taking them. And you don't just take them, by the way, you buy them. Uh, so when it's not my turn, I'm worried, hey, is that person going to take this six that I really, really want? Please don't take my six. Please don't take my six. Please don't take my six. So I'm super invested in my pieces, even when it's not my turn. Uh, another unique example of keeping players' attention, there's a GMT game and please don't hold the subject matter against this game, called Thunder Alley. Thunder Alley is about... You ready for this? NASCAR racing. I know what you're thinking. You're above NASCAR racing. There's a time I would have thought that as well. As a matter of fact, I still kind of think that. I can't imagine watching actual NASCAR racing. That's fine for some folks. But I never would have thought I'd be into a game about NASCAR racing. Thunder Alley, I'm totally into it, and not because it's about NASCAR racing, but because of the mechanics in it. In Thunder Alley, each player has a couple of cars. Uh, the fewer players, the more cars you get. Typically, you're going to have like three cars on your team, and how they finish determines how many points they get, and you total up your points to see who wins. So you don't necessarily need to come in first place. You just have to have, you have, to have the most cars earning the most points. So, you know, if I get a third, a fifth, and a sixth place, as long as everybody else has done way worse than me, uh, I can still win. It's not a matter of pushing one card across the finish line first. Uh, but the, 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 the unique thing about Thunder Alley is that when it's not my turn, my cars still move. And this is a the, – the cars are on a grid that represents a track. Uh, and when you move a car, you play a card. And the type of card will either push someone else's cars uh, forward or pull them along or move them sideways. Uh, oftentimes, when I take a turn and move one car, a huge line of cars makes progress around the track. Uh, and that's how Thunder Alley keeps things going, like keeps the game from being about, okay, now I move my car two spaces. You move your car three spaces. Oh, this guy got to move four spaces. This next guy only moves two spaces. The whole pack is moving, and I think that's very true to NASCAR. Listen to me, like I know what NASCAR is about. But I think that's very true to the actual sport of NASCAR racing, is it's very rough and tumble and very much about packs of cars pushing and pulling and sticking into clusters and moving. I don't know. Here's me pretending I know NASCAR. But Thunder Alley, when it's not my turn, crazy things will happen to my car. Uh, so when it finally gets around to my turn, I've been watching... You know, I care about these cars because I want them to, to finish 
up near the front of the pack, so I've been watching various things happen to them as they move forward and fall back and move to the side. Um, uh, of course, cooperative games with a trader are a great, great way to keep people interested because it's always in your best interest to be vigilant, to watch what the other players are doing, to see if you can suss out who might be the trader. Um, so, another recent game that I've played... And sorry to go on so long about this, but we're talking about the top three commandments of board game design. I could do this for hours, but I'll spare you. And I'm just going to cut to the chase now, because I'm about to uh, interview the developer of a game called Clockwork Wars. Now, Hassan Lopez is a first-time developer. Uh, the game is published by Eagle Griffin, uh, and... You, he's just done a great job with pacing. I'll, I'll burble enthusiastically to him when I talk to him. But just briefly, I want to tell you why the pacing is so good in Clockwork Wars. The first thing is, the, the turns are short. Like, it doesn't have you doing a lot of stuff on your turn. There's not a lot of calculations or a lot of resources to play with. Uh, in fact, the very beginning of a turn for everyone is a role selection very much like Puerto Rico, where... Uh, actually, that's not a good example. Maybe Carson City is a better example. Because like Puerto Rico, I choose something, I do the action, and everyone else gets something. In this, I choose something, like in Carson City, and only I get its benefit. So each of us chooses a little role, like there's like a spy master and a tinkerer and a, a recruiter and stuff like that. It gives you some immediate benefit or some bonus over the course of the turn. Everybody chooses from those. The first player goes first. He gets first dibs. Everyone else gets to choose from what's left over. Uh, super interactive. Then, when it comes time to actually put your little armies on the board, Clockwork Wars is ultimately very much a territory control game, where you're, uh, a war game where you're fighting dudes on the board. When it comes time to deploy these guys, it's simultaneous. Everyone writes on a piece of paper where and how many armies he's putting there. So you study the board, we're all looking, writing on our piece of paper, everyone's eyeballing everyone else, and then we all reveal it at the same time, we put our dudes on the board, any combat that ensues is very quick. There's no card playing or die rolling, super easy math, you know, whoever has the most little dudes there wins, and otherwise it's one-for-one -one casualties inflicted. Super easy to resolve. Then after that, there's a brief uh, collect resources phase, followed by spend resources to buy stuff. There are not a lot of things to buy. What's out there is what's been out there since the beginning of the game. Uh, in some games where you're spending resources to buy stuff, there's variety by constantly putting out new things. And the players are constantly like having to read, oh, what are these new cards? What's that? Oh, I've never seen that before. Uh, Clockwork Wars has a, a very small pool of stuff you can buy, all of which is super important, by the way. Uh, so there's not a lot of flipping up new things and players having to figure out what they are. All that's there from the get-go. Uh, there is always an impending victory point phase in Clockwork Wars. Uh, turns 2, 4, and 7, victory points are going to be decided. So you always care. You're always on the verge of movement and deployment being super important in determining victory points. And then finally, it's only 7 turns long. This is one of those games that... You could arguably say, just as it's getting underway, just as it's getting super interesting, it ends. Uh, I believe strongly, and I, th I think I'll speak with Hassan Lopez about this in a moment, better that a game ends too early than wears out its welcome. It's a balancing act, but definitely err on the side of ending too soon. 
there's even a, a, a variant in Clockwork Wars called the Epic Length Game. All it does is lets you play for two more turns. Um, so let's uh, enough uh, about my top three commandments. There's me. I'm going to step down from my pedestal now and sit down and have a chat with Hassan Lopez, the designer of Clockwork Wars. Hassan, I have a question I've been wanting to ask you about Clockwork Wars. Uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I kind of have an answer to it, and I'm curious if you have the same answer as me. So, first I want to pose it to you, and then I want to see if your theory is kind of like mine. So, here we go. Okay. Is, would Clockwork Wars work just as well if it were, say, set in, you know, like the Civil War, or classic Tolkien high fantasy, or um, something historical? You know, is this a system, a game, that could easily be adapted to another setting? I think so. Um, yeah, I- you know, I think that when I was originally coming up with the idea for the game, I started pretty early on with a steampunk aesthetic. You know, I that was it was it was part of my original vision for the game. But I think as I got into the design of it and the mechanics started being fleshed out, and I started um, you know tying in the theme with the mechanics as much as I could, it it sort of became clear that at that point it could be modified to a number of different contexts. It could have even been potentially a, just a historical war game context. Although I think in situations like that, the, the tech trees aren't maybe as enticing or exciting as, as they otherwise could be. That was, that was always sort of the big thematic hook for me was the discovery tree. And, um, you know, one of my inspirations for this game was I, I, I like playing real-time strategy games. And when I was, first coming up for the idea with Clockwork Wars, it was, uh, I was playing Rise of Legends, and I really liked sort of the bizarre, you know, landscape and mythology that was embedded in that game. I don't know if that's a game that your listeners are going to be familiar with, but it was, you know, it was kind of like this weird steampunk renaissance fantasy creature aesthetic. And um, I really liked how a lot of the magic powers and god powers in that game were you know, uh, atypical and non-conventional. And when I was designing the the tech tree for Clockwork Wars, I I wanted to lean on that kind of weird um, steampunk, non-traditional uh, aesthetic. So I, well, yeah, go ahead. I, I realized I screwed the question up because you're basically saying what I what I what I wanted to talk about, but I meant to phrase it in a in a more provocative way. So let me try again. Sure. Because. You've said exactly what I want to hear, um, but what I meant to say basically is, uh, why is Clockwork Wars steampunk? What makes it steampunk, and why couldn't it have just been about, say, the Civil War? Uh, and, and my answer to that, and I, it's exactly what you're getting at, um, you know, this isn't steampunk necessarily because you have a steam tank, for instance. That's very steampunk. Um, this isn't just a steampunk sheet draped over a, a gameplay framework, uh, I think that what you have done with, uh, I think of it as the tech tree, but I think you called it the discovery system? Yeah, yep. Yeah, I think what you've done there makes this uniquely steampunky. Uh, in that, the it, 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 it's, it's this interplay uh, thematically and in terms of mechanics of religion, science, and sorcery. Uh, and I think that's kind of a unique trapping of steampunk 
And I love how the game rests so much on that idea. Um, so, and I, I also love that you mentioned Rise of Legends as an inspiration because I think of that also as a quintessentially steampunk idea for how it it has these. It's not. It's, it's they have really cool tech tree stuff, but I think of their three factions exactly. as being completely weird. Yeah. One of them is super steampunk, but that blend of three weird disparate systems reminds me a bit of what you're doing with uh, religion, sorcery, uh, and science in the discovery tree. Absolutely. So yeah, yeah, and you know the the, the idea is that I, I I love steampunk, but I don't like. I'll be honest, I don't like sort of traditional steampunk aesthetic stuff. Like, I, I, a lot of people are really into, you know, for example, the clothing and the culture of steampunk. And that stuff never really interested me. I, I liked, you know, traditional steampunk literature, um, you know, things like the Difference Engine and, you know, Gibson stuff. But, you know, one thing I realized about steampunk pretty early on is that it was, it was, a, it was a, a, a literary sort of system or genre that, was open to enormous interpretation. Like it gave you a lot of creative freedom mm-hmm. to come up with really weird and sort of um, anachronistic type scenarios. And maybe people in the gaming world weren't giving it the credit it deserved, or you know, allowing their imaginations to roam as much as they could have. And you end up with a lot of, you know, robots with bowler hats, is what I always tell. <laughs> And and I'm and I, it's also very in, in board games. Steampunk tends to be very um, cartoony, you know, like almost like Team Fortress cartoony, and you know, silly. And uh, I knew very early on I wanted this to be, you know, for lack of a better word, gritty and dark, and also to be, you know, a world that was not what you would traditionally think of as steampunk. That's sort of where the idea of the the hybrid races come in. And it's like, okay, well, let's take some inspiration from Island of Dr. Moreau, but let's, you know, let's try to put these, um, these creatures and these, um, this culture in a, in a place that will maybe surprise people a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's, I'll, I'll be honest, it's kind of challenging in a game that ultimately is as abstract as Clockwork Wars is because the, the theme or the story or the narrative you're trying to get the players to experience is coming across in these, you know, one and a half by one and a half inch illustrations, which, you know, can be beautiful, but um, you're, you're asking the player to use their imagination quite a bit. Um, and there are going to be some players who just approach the game very mechanically and don't really care too much about the aesthetic or the narrative that you're trying to tell, and that's totally fine. I mean, you know, players approach board games in lots of different ways, and part of your goal as a designer is almost to give people lots of different hooks that they can latch onto if they want to. Well, I kind of feel with Clockwork Wars, you've um, you've really delicately straddled this line between what's traditionally called a Euro game and a Meritrash. Mm. I mean, you have you have these really cool little figures that people really want to play with. You know, you don't just want that steam tank or that general because they're awesome. You also want them because those really stand out on the board with the little wooden discs. I mean, those look cool. Um, And that's kind of an Ameritrash hook, and there's there's nothing wrong with that. But teaching someone Clockwork Wars is super easy because there's this Euro elegance to the systems. It's not this typical Ameritrash of... Okay, this guy gets three dice plus one. These guys over here get one die. When you're standing here, it's plus one. Uh, if you have 
more than this many figures. You get a book. I mean, it's it's very. This is a super easy game to teach, by the way, which, when I bring it out, there's that huge box, and it looks really daunting. Um, but I, this is one of the quickest games that I can go from, okay, you've never seen this before, to, hey, we're playing, and now you're really immersed in it, and you're, you're coming up with your own strategies. And uh, So I, I love that kind of streamlining. I'm glad to hear that. that. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think I struggle with teaching the game more than other people do, because, I, you know, I... I'm not as good at sort of leaving out non-critical rules, you know, during the setup and letting letting that stuff sort of evolve as people get into the game. I I tend to sort of upload people and and almost overwhelm them. But uh, you know, I'm the same way though, Hassan. Is I, I kind of feel that I mean it, it's helpful to remind people of things during a game, but I kind of with you and that I feel that before we start playing, I should pretty much let them know. Everything and that can be difficult, um, yeah. but that's that's kind of the price you pay if if you want to play board games that you haven't played before. I feel, um, yeah. You know, I, I again like sort of the original one of the you know when you sit down and you design something, and I assume all designers are this way. You you kind of have your your short list of critical um, design goals or whatever you want to call them objectives, and one of the ones on you know one of my first notes that I took for this game was. Um, keep it streamlined. You know, I I, I really like big, um, you know, meaty, you know, for lack of a better term, war games. I my my older brothers was the one who introduced me to games, and he was an Avalon, you know, Hill sort of Grognor, traditional Grognard, and we played a lot of those games growing up. You know, Squad Leader and these rule books that are like 50 pages long, and eventually I started getting into you know, slightly more streamlined um, games like the Game Master series. And, you know, I, I was attracted to anything that had big maps and lots of units and, and dice. But I was always frustrated by, you know, what you were describing as, um, you know, some of the Ameritrash components to those games. You know, for example, the rule exceptions. You know, rule exceptions are a real pain in the butt. They're uh, an additional cognitive load that the players need to, you know, worry about. And, if there's a lot of them, then that means that almost always your first two or three games playing something, you're going to do it wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. And and then, you know, the, the other difficulty with those sort of big, you know, meaty games is that um, on top of all those layers of, of sort of supposed complexity, there's often additional layers of randomness. So um, Ameritrash games are not only known for having um, a lot of exceptions and, and odd, odd, quirky rules that maybe only kick in once every you know four or five situations, but they're also deeply embedded with you know dice or some sort of randomness system. And that combination always struck me as odd. And one thing you know your games have taught us is that you can get um, really beautiful emergent complexity in board games without having overloaded rules and without having randomness. Um, so, so it was definitely an early design goal of Clockwork Wars to keep it, keep it streamlined, give it some of that European elegance, but also give people the feeling that they're playing a grand, epic, Ameritrashy game. Mm-hmm. Do you do you know a game called Terra Mystica? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you kind of what you've done with Clockwork Wars, Terra Mystica, uh, very kind of Euroy, um, but a lot of weird exceptions, a lot of really dramatic asymmetry. Um, and it's supposed to evoke high fantasy stuff. Uh, and, and I feel, I love Terra Mystica. Uh, it's a tough sell to, to uh, a casual group. Um, 
It can be a, a drawn-out, very difficult game. Uh, and one of the things about Terra Mystica, I really respect the gameplay systems in Terra Mystica, but I kind of, when I'm done playing, the narrative that emerges for me is more about the mechanics. Like, okay, I got these spaces along the river with my little colored units that were this, and I don't necessarily think... You know, I was the mermaid people, or I was the elves, or these were the dwarves. Because right. it's got that, that weird terraforming conceit. Um, so Terra Mystica is an incredible system that does almost nothing for me to evoke it, its its theme, this high fantasy stuff. Uh, and so it's interesting to hear you talk, because I get the sense that you're, trying, you're doing what Terra Mystica is trying to do, and you're mainly succeeding by sprinkling in little bits of Ameritrash and by not being as crazily asymmetrical uh, as Terra Mystica. Um, one of the things that when I first started learning the game, when I get a game, I love pulling the pieces out and sort of arranging them and looking at what's in there and reading the rules. And uh, I like learning the game to be as tactile as, as, as actually playing it. So one of my initial disappointments with Clockwork Wars, where I'm going, oh, this is really a missed opportunity, uh, was with racial asymmetry. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I came around 180 degrees on that because I feel there's plenty of opportunity for asymmetry here. But you seem to have been very, I guess, restrained in terms of making the four factions different from each other in that the only difference is each of them gets one in the case of a couple races, too, unique unit. And they can even lose it. Like, they can lose it during the game, and then they're just like a vanilla faction at yeah, that point. Yeah, you can lose it on the first turn if you're unlucky. Yeah. Yeah, and, and if you're like the, the Rhinox, you're basically throwing them away. They're like bombs. Right. They're, they're one-use bombs. Um, so it is, were you ever tempted towards more asymmetry? Was that something you had in mind all along? Uh, are you surprised at my reaction when I'm learning the game and I'm thinking, oh, they're not very asymmetrical? Uh, what was your approach to that? No, I think that um, if there's one sort of, uh, you know, regular, I don't know if I'd call it a criticism, but one, you know, complaint or curiosity a lot of players have with the system is that they, they wish there was more asymmetry. And my reaction is, is, is definitely the opposite. I, you know, from the beginning, I was actually really hesitant to throw in um, additional asymmetry. That was very much a demand um, or a request from my publisher, Eagle, that was um, that occurred during the development sequence. You know, they it was it was probably halfway through development when they said, like, look, at this point you've designed the system that can play up to four players, but you've given, you know, e- e- there's no difference between the players. That's where it was at at that stage. Um, and we want you to come up with basically special abilities for for each of the players to hold on to because people love that. And and I basically was like, no, I don't want to. And 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 <laughs> the reason was, um, you know, for uh, it, it, a lot of this has to do with this issue of balance in my mind because mm-hmm. uh, balance in strategy games is is such a, a complex and and mind numbing process because. Um, players want asymmetry, but they also desperately want balance. And my argument has always been that you, you just can't do it. There is no such thing as a perfectly balanced system. Um, in the world of video games, like if we take something like League of Legends or something like that, they have the advantage where you can you can basically just patch the system, right? So you can get like thousands, millions of data points and uh, actually watch outcomes and see, you know, which characters may be overpowered and then tweak this stat or that stat. 
in board games, you don't have that opportunity, right? You just the, the first time you publish it, it basically has to be um, spot on, or people are really going to find it and they're going to complain about it, and it can sink your game if if they if they find an exploit or if there's an overpowered strategy, um, people will discover it. And so, you know, my hesitancy was always like, look, let the let the players create asymmetry through the discovery tree, through use of the espionage cards. There's plenty of diversity um, in the game built in already. Um, why why create this additional hassle for us with with racial powers? Um, but you know, I did it, and and I think you you hit the nail on the head. I, I tried to be um, restrained in it, and I think. Um, now looking back on it, it was I'm really glad that Eagle asked me to do it because it did give us the opportunity to, I think, make the the map and the the war aspect of the game a little bit more exciting with the unique units. Like the you know once you throw those those unique units on the board, things do become much more interesting. And I, I think we were able to give each of the sides a unique enough flavor so that it does feel different playing them. What it does for me, Hassan, is because uh, as someone who loves asymmetry, the longer the game goes on, and actually fairly quickly, asymmetry is very quickly introduced. Mm. With you mentioned the discovery tree, the imperial court. Oh my God, those espionage cards! Um, it comes into play pretty quickly. But what I appreciate about the, the the minor asymmetry of the races is there's there's asymmetry right before you play. Mm. Even Because otherwise, every game would start with everyone having the same blank slate. And as a designer, I understand someone who has to balance things, that is much easier to deal with. Uh, but when, when I sit down to play, I do like that immediately there's something different about what I've got than what my other, the other players have. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so. and I think that helps people... Also, um, you know, it, it, it builds into the narrative element. Like, oh, you know, I'm going to play the troglodytes. And, you know, right. I, I can I can sort of get into that. Okay, I see who they are, and I sort of see where their philosophy is pushing me. And that, you know, that's the other thing as a designer you always want to be hesitant about with asymmetry is um, I've played lots of board games where the starting, you know, faction power basically is locking you into a particular strategic Ah, path. sure. And and I find that frustrating. Like you know, I, I I want there to be enough flexibility in the game system that if I need to switch my strategy after you know the third or fourth turn, I'm allowed to do. So. Right, uh, right. Some faction asymmetries don't let you do that. It's also good, I, I think, um, in terms of uh, for a game that has, especially at the beginning, this Euro streamlining. Uh, it, it's super helpful for some players to have a cool little visual representation of who they are, you know, a figure, a mini, uh, on the board. And that, that's, again, that's a very Ameritrashy tenet, um, is give the player a little toy. Uh, and it's just kind of a, 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 an early, it's, a, it's an immediate concession to the effectiveness of Ameritrash without conceding to the whole design philosophy. Totally. So I love that about, I have a little troglodyte or whatever. Uh, as a matter of fact, by the way, it's always a great hook for for teaching it. Like, is it is it the troglodytes that double a, a research bonus on a space? That's right. Yep. Yeah. So my my thing with them is I always have to explain these guys don't fight, even though what they're holding they look like they look like they have big guns. So I'm basically <laughs> like, 
These are the nonviolent guys. They help you with research. Even though they have big guns, don't <laughs> use them in battles. Uh, so there's always this kind of like visual reminder of, oh, yeah, those are the non-fighting guys because Tom said those aren't guns. Um, <laughs> you know, when you, when you put a little bug in someone's ear, it's way easier for them to remember rather than if I just explain the rule. So, uh, so I, I've kind of we, – uh, we, we've, we've ranged a little bit past what I wanted to tell you up front – um, which is namely there are two things about Clockwork Wars which have which I love about it, which are my favorite things about it. Um, and, and one of them is that, that discovery tree. Uh, the other one is the pacing. So for two reasons, uh, anybody who plays board games is going to develop over time their own predilections, their own pet peeves. Uh, I just cannot abide a game that doesn't have good pacing. Uh, and I furthermore cannot abide a game that doesn't feel different every time I play it, where the more I play it, the more familiar I get with it, and that familiarity breeds this kind of complacence, and I'd rather play something new. Because as anybody who's into board games or video games, a lot of what we want in that hobby is the shininess of something new. So unless a board game can bring me that every time I play it, I can sort of lose interest. And unless it has really good pacing as a social dynamic, it can fall apart. Uh, on both of those counts, Clockwork Wars has just hit it out of the park, Hassan. That's great. So let's I want to talk about both of those. Um, the Discovery Tree you've mentioned, I just want to say the Discovery Tree is, I, I love, A, the randomness of it. Um, every time you start, you know, there's a deck of science, religion, and alchemical cards. And every time you start, you're only going to use three of those. And those three cards for each three aspects, you know, that's nine cards, are huge determinants in terms of how the game will unfold and what kind of mechanics are introduced. You know, you said you hate rules exceptions, and I'm with you. That can be really difficult to teach. But when those rules exceptions have to be earned and are folded into the game at very explicit points that the player engineers, those are the great rules exceptions. I've always felt that one of the, one of the most imp an important facet of game design is to introduce a rule and then break it. Right. You know, uh, Mario can only jump so high, but he eats a mushroom, and now he can jump twice as high. Right. Uh, so I love how these texts, these discovery trees, this random kind of tech tree that, that begins every game, and everyone can immediately see it, by the way, how they kind of break rules. You know, this elegant non-random combat that you've created, which it's not that far from diplomacy, you know, the pieces take each other off at a one-to-one -one ratio. Uh, yep. And a lot of the, 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 the text, the discoveries, break that entirely. Uh, so I also feel, and this is something I love in a game, I love when you're playing a game and you only use a few of the components. You know, the so much of the cool stuff you've done, Hassan, gets left in the box every time you play Clockwork Wars. Right. Uh, and that makes me just think, that was cool. I can't wait to see what happens next time. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm completely the same as you. I think that um, you know, we live in an era, unfortunately, where there's a plethora of, of just fantastic board games coming out all the time. And so I think the tendency of people who play board games is to 
try one, um, maybe enjoy it, and then kind of, you know, move on to the next, right? And even in my game group, we get together and a, a couple of my, my friends are regularly complaining, like, why don't we play the same thing, you know? Most- I know. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, which is interesting because when I designed Clockwork Wars, I kind of, you know, I really, there was just kind of like this tagline I had in my head, which was the only the only strategy game you'll ever need. You know, I wanted to make it so that it was, um, you could just play it for, you know, decades. And, and you could pull it out, and every time you played it, the map was going to be different. The discovery tree was going to be different. Your, you know, your race could be different, and how it interacted with those discoveries was going to be different. So that sort of infinite variation, which a lot of us chase, was, was an important piece. Um, I think that, you know, the one interesting trick or facet with um, that kind of variability is you, the game has to obviously be um, similar enough from play session to play session so that a player feels an escalating sense of mastery over the systems. And that you don't, every time you sit down, you, you feel like, oh, now things have changed so dramatically that I don't feel better than, than I was last game. And right. I think that um, that's why the, the sort of the core systems of Clockwork Wars are very, very simple, and it's it, it's very much has to do with that one for one combat system, as well as really the sort of the mind games that you play with your opponents and trying to figure out where they're going to go and and where you're going to go. Um, and then you, on top of that, can layer this kind of uh, variation in in terms of the technologies. Um, and the technologies too. One of the things that I don't. I don't, I'm sure this is something similar has been done elsewhere, but I can't think of any other game that when you research a tech or when you basically buy something or earn something that's not an army that, that modifies the rules, that you are vulnerable to having it taken away from you. Um, and I love that in Clockwork Wars, when I research something, I've got to put it on the map. I've got to make it something that the other player can steal. Uh, and what that does is... It, it gives the map a very definite shape. Uh, uh, it introduces a new shape that wasn't there when the map started. Um, so not only are you changing the rules, but you're also changing the importance of different points on on the map. Uh, what was that? So I, I want to hear a little bit about the 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 discovery tree and the development of it. Uh, how difficult was it to tune? Uh, what are some things that maybe you had to cut from there? Were there any that were too powerful and that had to be toned down? Uh, and how did you hit upon this idea of putting each discovery on the map where it was vulnerable to being stolen? Um, those are yeah, those are good questions. I I knew from the beginning um, the goal was definitely to make the discoveries feel really like groundbreaking, especially the the, the sort of the level three or late age discoveries. Um, I wanted players to feel like it was like, oh my god, this I must be reading this wrong. You know, it it, it, can't, <laughs> it can't possibly mean that you know I can destroy an entire you know tile in the game, or that um, I can generate that many points if I if I have this sort of you know set up just so. Mm-hmm. So, and and the idea there was that I think you can get away with that in a game if there if the information is openly available to all players from the beginning so uh, you know a critical element and this is something i did i, I remember I, I had a brief argument with my publisher about they they wanted the middle and late age discoveries to be hidden um ooh yeah i don't i don't like that at all yeah well, why did they did they why did they want that i think just um 
I think because it would add a, you know, sort of a layer of surprise, like, oh, we've started okay. the second age, and now let's flip over the cards and see what's available. And I fought them, you know, it wasn't a long battle. They totally understood where I was coming from, but I, I fought them very strongly on it and saying, no, no, you know, we have to allow all players to see all the discoveries from the beginning because um, I want players to be able to shape their strategy based on what they see available in the late age. And that, and that you know, those sometimes your entire strategy for a game is going to be based around trying to capture or get um, a middle or late age discovery. And you know what, Hassan? I, sorry to interrupt you, but it, it's it, not hilarious. But it, it's really uh, I'm, I'm now realizing they've recently published a, a really cool kind of update of a game by a fellow named Glenn Drover called uh, Age of Discovery. Yeah. It was based on the Age of Empires license, uh, and it, it it does something similar, not quite like the the discoveries. They're not that dramatic. It's a worker placement game, and every age you lay out these different tiles that you can purchase that are kind of like technologies. Uh, and they get increasingly powerful with age one, two, and three. So in that way, it's kind of like your discovery tree. Uh, but you don't know in advance what tiles are coming out in which age. You know, some of them will stay in the box. Uh, so one of the complaints that they've addressed, and I think this is an official variant in Age of Discovery, is lay out the age three tiles before the game starts so people know what is going to come into play in age three. Right. So, so it's almost like they did that mechanic in Age of Discovery and then later realized what you're talking about is these third age things can be so dramatic, you don't want to spring these on players at the last moment because they win the game. You want the players to work their way towards them. Absolutely. So yeah. I, I feel like I, you know, I, I'm fascinated at publisher-designer sort of disagreements. I feel like you were definitely vindicated <laughs> and they realized that in Age of Discovery. Yeah, no, I, I, especially, you know, once... I think once they saw how powerful they can be and how I right. wanted to keep them at that power level, I think they understood like, okay, I think we need to, we need to keep them that. But yeah, the, I, you asked a question about sort of tweaking them and um, balancing them. And that, that was definitely a constant, um, that was a constant struggle and something that, you know, drove me personally crazy throughout the entire process. And, you know, for, for stuff like that, you really do lean on play testers a lot and you, you kind of mm -hmm. hope that, you, you get somebody who figures out a way to break a card or, or, or shows how it, um, you know, under certain circumstances has a much greater effect than, than you want it to. We definitely, you know, switched some discoveries around from one age to another based on, you know, realizing that they were more powerful or less powerful than we thought. But, you know, looking back on it, I'm actually surprised if I look at my original list of discoveries that I, you know, sort of brainstormed for the game, just that first those first few days of coming up with ideas, I'm surprised at how many of them, you know, persisted through mm -hmm. through the very end and basically um, and did not change very much. So, I, do you have any anecdotes, or can you remember specifically? And maybe you can't, but can you remember specifically any of them, any of them that were real problem childs? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure if I can come up with any off the bat, but that's fine. Yeah, um, I. I, I know that we had some that you know we you could you could generate points from them by having you know certain numbers of units on them and and we just realized that there were situations where a player could you know get like twenty points in the last turn and that it was just it was just a little bit too much but right right um, 
So, so then the other thing that I'm curious about, which I love about it, is the idea that you put them on the map, and that even though I paid for it, even though I planned towards it, if I can't defend it, I'm going to lose it, and the other guy's just going to use it against me. Right. That yeah, that actually that came later in development, and that was um, that was something you know, this, Clockwork Wars I think had a non-traditional developmental trajectory. So I. I took the game idea to, to Eagle um, in, it was probably around 2008, 2009, and they sat on it for a while, which is something that just happens. You know, it, it goes from one, one person's desk to another for, for a year or more, and you just have to, a lot of people told me, you just have to be patient. Um, but once, once I started working with a couple of them on actual development of, you know, like, hey, we, we really like this idea, Here's what here's what we would like from you. There were a couple big hits, and I'm kind of going off track here, but they're they're kind of interesting. One was that it it started as a two player game only, and so mm-hmm. they wanted it to obviously be more suitable for a larger player count because that would that just would sell more copies. That was kind of right. their bottom line, and that was something that was really challenging for me because I had always envisioned it as a sort of a two player head to head battle and. And then tweaking the systems to accommodate more players was was really interesting and um, and pushed me in lots of you know um, uncomfortable design directions. But it, it ended up being really really useful, and I'm glad that I'm glad that we ended up going in that direction. Um, the you know uh, the other thing that really changed during that developmental process was the espionage cards. Uh, early on, I had you know designed that system to be pretty. I would I would say you know. Um, pretty light, you know, in the sense that I didn't want espionage cards to be, um, to, to feel t- so overpowered. I wanted them to be useful, but I didn't want them to have a major impact on the game. And there were no courts at that time. So they were basically just like these cards you could periodically play to spice things up. And one thing that happened in the middle of the development is that I was I, I figured out a way to tie the playing of the espionage cards to to having spies in this court location, and the court location could give you bonuses the more spies you had there. And that was a very exciting sort of you know shift in development that happened. And a second tweak that happened during that time was that a lot of playtesters said, "I just want the espionage cards to be to be to feel more impactful." And so we really ended up bumping up their power. Um, part of me still think still thinks they're actually too powerful. So I'm not sure if we, if we tweaked it just right, but um, some of them can be ab- absolutely devastating. I will say it, it is kind of, uh, with new players, a rude shock <laughs> to realize how important the espionage cards are. Because you get one, you look at it, uh, you know, you think, oh, this is really cool. But w- when they're used at the right time, they're so incredibly painful because the rest of the there, – there's so much that's transparent with the, the discovery tree and with the court. Like, you know what's coming. Right. The espionage cards, you don't know what's coming, and it hurts. <laughs> and, unless, by the way, you're using it, in which case it's incredibly gratifying. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I, I can understand your reservations uh, as far as, like, tuning the game, but uh, those create some in, super important narrative beats. Yeah, I, and I, I think that's where, where players, the playtesters, were coming from. Um, yeah. But, the, yeah, the, the, the other sort of big shift was putting those discoveries on the map. And I... I, I I even remember the, the the day that, you know, I sort of started bandying around that idea. I was like, oh, you know, this could be really interesting. Let's not just have the players um, keep the discoveries sort of, you know, uh, you know, just sort of abstractly by their capital. Let's actually make them put them somewhere on the map. 
And the, I, the first game I played with that in play just felt awesome. I was just like, oh, this is, everything's different now. Like, you know, now there's this really interesting decision early on in the game when you research your first discovery of um, where you're going to put it. Because if you put it in yeah. your capital, it's safe the rest of the game. But now, you know, if you do end up researching a late-age discovery, that's going to be vulnerable because you're going to have to put it somewhere on the map. Um, and, well, that means that most people put their early-age discoveries out on the map, which instantly means that the map becomes um, full of, of, of bullseye targets. And I, I just love that. I really – that's another thing that I think new players um, are, are surprised by because you don't see it in a lot of board games um, you're sort of used to, hey, this is what I researched. This is mine. You can't take this from me. And then you you have a system where, no, no, you know, like you have to defend that now. And that's there's very limited resources in Clockwork Wars. Every unit that you use to defend a discovery is a unit that you're not using to score a lake or a forest or put into the court or do something interesting. And I also think it adds to, uh, it, rather than it feeling like something that I learned, it has this kind of fantasy conceit of here is an object of unimaginable power that I must defend. Right. Uh, you know, it's a physical thing rather than, you know, something that I've learned or knowledge necessarily. Uh, it's this cool toy that I found and I want to keep it and it's mine. You know, there's this physical possession of it is get your hands off that. That belongs to me. It is an object. It is mine. I love that too. Okay. Um, uh, so the other thing that I, that I mentioned, which again is so important for me because and I'm sure a lot of gaming groups feel this way, there are so many games to play uh, that, in a way, my, my time is so much more valuable. And it's not just my time, it's my friend's time. So when I play a game where I feel like it's drawn out, there's too much filler, you know, I resent more than anything else a game that I feel is wasting my time that could be much shorter, and even more important than the length of the game is the pacing. My uh, Clockwork Wars... It is never not my turn in Clockwork Wars. Like, there's never not a time where I'm about to do something or I just did something uh, or I am doing something. Uh, that uh, is, I think, probably one of the game's, the game's greatest achievement, I would say, just as someone who puts a premium on pacing. Uh, how difficult was that to get? And uh, tell me a little bit about any struggles you may have had Doing that, and I guess a lot of it too is the simultaneous movement. Yeah, absolutely, and I'm I'm super excited to hear you say that because, again, it was it was an early design goal. You know, I mm-hmm. um, I I love I love war games, and I love those sort of dudes on a map games that we were talking about earlier. But the the whole I go you go system that's embedded in most of those games is is really frustrating to me, and. Um, you know, just as a side note, like one of my greatest pet peeves when playing board games is when people pull out their phone. Like I just, I just can't stand it. And as a designer, I always see that as a failure. Like you know, like yeah. I've, I've lost that player. You know, if my if my game can't capture somebody's attention, you know, for an hour, an hour and a half, the entire time, then then okay, there's something wrong with the the systems in play. So. With regards to pacing, it was kind of this, there was, I think, two aspects to it. One was definitely the, the simultaneous decision-making about where to place your units. It created sort of this, you know, constant sense of tension, or at least every turn there was this sense of tension where um, you weren't sure what your opponents were going to do. You, you, you had to really think carefully about where you're going to place your units, and the, the, the sort of the 
the release when you you know everyone sort of revealed their orders was always going to be very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, the second aspect to the pacing was the the sort of regular scoring of the three ages. So there's these three turns which you know when they're coming, and you know that those are particularly vital turns for having your units on key territories, you know, forests and lakes. And I think that 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 regular scoring opportunity that's going to happen also creates this interesting pace to the game where, you know, right off the bat on turn two, you have to worry about scoring. And then it's going to be turn four, and then it's turn seven, hey, and the game's over. Um, So I think it creates this, you know, fast-moving, constant feel of engagement, um, which which I'm glad to hear, you know, you, you, you feel like we were successful in doing that. Now, you do have a variant, I think it's called like the Epic Game variant, which basically just draws out the turns, um, and I actually haven't tried it. I kind of feel like, you know, I, I guess, why is that in there? Yeah, so the, the, the story there is that that was, the, that was the way the game was going to be. Um, you know, it was nine turns, three, three, three. Um, and it was really, I would, I would say it was like a, you know, a midnight, right, at, you know, when the Kickstarter was launching change, that I made, you know, after consulting with, with my developers and saying like, look, you know, I, I, I think that we should change the number of turns down to seven. And my, my prime reasoning for that was that it was just at that, at that stage, it was increasingly clear to me that the nine turn games were lasting, you know, easily two hours. And, Mm -hmm. um, the, the, I'd always hoped that a two-player game of Clockwork Wars could be under an hour and that the sort of typical three- to four-player games were going to be 90 minutes. And I wanted that to be a real honest number, you know, not, not a, not a sort of, uh, you know, made-up one. Right. Um, and it just wasn't working. And, and so, you know, I, I was like, I'm going to try seven turns. I'm going to try a two-two-three sort of scoring structure and again, it was one of those moments where we tried it. The first couple playtests immediately revealed that that was that was the way to do it. Um, and since we had a double-sided scoreboard, we're like, well, let's throw on the three-three-three version. Um, if people want to play that way, they can. If they want a slightly longer game with more build-up towards the scoring ages, they can do it. But I, I agree with you too. Too the the, the shortened turns, uh, I think, really makes the game move a lot faster and makes you feel constantly engaged turn to turn. It, it also, I imagine you hear this, but I think a, a lot of times when there are that, when there aren't that many turns, when there, rather than, there's seven rather than nine, uh, I imagine you sometimes hear people say, uh, hey, I was, the game was just getting interesting and it ended. Right. Uh, and, but to me that means like those super powerful uh, level three discoveries, if you can only use them once or twice, uh, and actually, I guess literally twice because there are two turns there in play. Um, that I, I like that they are that rare. That someone can't is it? Isn't it is Ritual of Blood third level? Yeah. Do you remember? All th- yeah. So that right there, the fact that that like swings a game, it feels like it swings a game so dramatically. I feel like it, it should only be used twice. Like I, I love that that you get a taste of it, you see how powerful it is, and you can basically. And then you're done with it. You know, you've got to put it up until next time if it even shows up. Uh, it just feels like it makes the super powerful things all the more precious. That uh, the door closes a little earlier than you might want. Because if you, by the way, and I think this is a balancing issue, when you add those extra turns and the difference between seven and nine, 
that makes those third age discoveries all the more important. Like that shifts the balance towards the third age in a way. It does. Um, yeah. You, you can't just add two turns to a game. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, no, I think um, I, I remember hearing someone tell me, an, you know, an adage about board game design is that it's better to leave people wanting more than, yes. than feeling overfull. And I think that that's true with board games. I think, the feeling you want people to have when they finish a board game is, oh, well, let's let's roll it up again. You know, like that's always the best feeling when you, as a designer, when you watch people as soon as they finish the game, they want to try it again. And I think if a if a game goes that little too long, I, I think they're more likely to leave it on their shelf. And again, nowadays that that could mean forever, right? So right. Um, it's definitely better to to cut off a game sooner rather than later, and and again, you know, it's just a it's sort of another sort of I guess or conceit or nod to the modern board gamer is that, I mean, I have an appreciation for this because I have a five year old daughter. Is like a lot of board gamers nowadays have families and have limited time, or you know, they're they're looking for that one and a half hour, two hour sweet spot, and. Mm-hmm. People rarely have the time for those three, four-hour massive, you know, sessions or that Twilight Imperium. It's just, it's just not feasible, right? So, the, I, you know, now, you know, all my game designs, it's really just how can I hit, you know, basically between forty-five to ninety minutes. I think yeah. so many people are aiming for that. Uh, it really does kind of feel like I remember when I was like in junior high and high school, and we would spend all Saturday playing D and D or something, and I would have no compunction about sitting down for eight hours with my friends <laughs> to play something. Uh, nowadays, that is not going to happen. You know, once you get to be an adult and people have careers and families, Twilight Imperium will never make it to my table ever again, <laughs> and I'm kind of okay with that. It's like there's there's a whole different way you approach games when you've got all the time in the world than when you have to live an adult life. So yeah, yeah, and and part of that is that we, you know, it, we have video gaming for for those long sessions. And right. the trick with board gaming is that it's not. I mean, unless you're playing solitaire, it's it's organizing a session with with three, four, or five other people who have families and schedules and jobs. So right. Um, you know, it, I, I, you have to, uh, at least for me, since I love, you know, computer games so much, I'm actually always cognizant of the effect of computer gaming on board game design. And, and I think that's another thing that has shifted board games in, in certain interesting directions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, one, one thing that uh, I want to, I don't know about call you out on, but one thing that I'm like, wait a minute, when I sort of explain it, when I look at the rules, I understand why you've done this. Uh, you have to score, you know, you have those scoring phases, and you only score for getting specific hexes. And you obviously don't want people to just park armies on those hexes and kind of stagnate uh, a certain map state. Like where, okay, Tom's got four armies on that forest, I'm never going to be able to crack that, I'll have to go somewhere else. So what you do is this thing where you explain <laughs> that pollution kills, <laughs> I think it's all but one unit, is that right? That's right, yeah. All right, so... That's one of the few things that I'm like, okay, that's a little forced to solve. <laughs> Pollution, really? So talk to me about, obviously that is why you did that, right? Is that you have to Absolutely. free up those spaces. You don't want the map to get into a, a frozen state early in the game. Absolutely, uh, yeah. So how difficult was it to explain that this that this happens because of pollution? <laughs> well, that that was that was one of those really just hilarious, just brainstorming sessions of, um, you know, you're always hoping that, 
a rule somehow naturally falls into your your theme and and for that one it was just like it definitely i agree with you i think it's the most forced rule <laughs> in the book um it's it's definitely necessary mechanically but it was I, I remember going through a variety of different options for that one like oh maybe it's not pollution and maybe um you know like they, you know the, the longer that they stay in like these natural ter- you know resources they I think I was calling it desertion at one point, like they desert your army because they're surrounded by natural beauty. Um, you know, so we, I thought of a couple of different things, but um, it just, it was like, okay, we're going to call it pollution and just run. Right. That's fine. Uh, what, what that kind of does too is, uh, again, anytime you're teaching a game and you can say something that's either kind of humorous or outrageous, it helps people remember it. Like saying with the troglodytes, those aren't guns, don't think these guys can fight. It's the same with the pollution bit, is I never have any problem with people remembering, you know, once I cash in the points, I'm going to lose the units, because everybody's like, wait a minute, pollution, really? That's why they die? Uh, so uh, I like to think of it uh, just in my own head, Hassan, as um, the army has to dismantle into workers that then exploit the resources. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I do mentally. I like that. Uh, I like that. Uh, all right, so uh, I want to hear a little bit, too, about the courts, because that's another thing, the tech. The discovery tree is laid out uh, at the beginning of the game. It gives the game a very important structure. Um, the courts also, I think there's three courts with the game. Whichever one comes out, very definite structure there. Uh, it's, a, it, it's a resource sink in that you, know, you can send an army on the board, you can save it for technology, or you can put it out as a spy to either chase the little court rewards or to fuel your espionage cards. Um, that's a great little system. I think you did. You say that was a late game edition. It was, yeah. That probably the, came in the middle of our development cycle. Yeah. Uh, why three different courts and not just have one court? So, so for instance, with the generals, every single game there will be a leviathan, a guardian, and a steam tank up for grabs. Anybody can buy it. It's a consistent game-to-game feature structure. Uh, why did you want three courts rather than just giving the game a constant shape every time with one specific court? Sure, yeah. I mean, that was just yet another opportunity for, for variation, you know, so that, that every play setup was going to be different. And I think it was when I was brainstorming court ideas, I realized that I had a bunch and that they were all viable. And, you know, once I asked Eagles, like, hey, can we have multiple courts in the game um, and people choose one? Before before playing, they were like, "Yeah, that's fine. We can do that." Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it was it was just another opportunity to throw in uh, slightly different tweaks, and it, I think it, in some ways it, it it lets you it lets you tweak the how much of an impact the court's going to have on play. Like I, I I would argue that the Rasputin court, which is only worth three victory points, that one isn't maybe as potent as. The Lovelace Court, which is the really powerful one that also gives you a free discovery. And so if you maybe wanted to play a game where the court system wasn't having a strong ah, pull right. on people, then you could you could choose one versus another one. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, and, and then fueling the espionage cards. That's kind of insidious, too. Those espionage cards, you get it, you want to use it, you got to have a spy to spend on it. Uh, that, by the way, was... Uh, so you mentioned that a lot of times when you, you learn a game, you, you'll miss a rule and you'll, you'll play wrong the first time. The first time I played Clockwork Wars, and I'm pretty confident every time since then we've got it right, but the first time I neglected to 
to learn that you have to spend a spy for the espionage cards, and then everybody was doing R&D to grab the cards and then just slam <laughs> each other with them. Uh, so obviously a huge limiting factor on the espionage cards um, that uh, you mentioned in, in tuning the espionage card power, I feel that more than makes up for – I feel that, that's, that that does a great job of offsetting the power of the espionage cards is that I have to spend a spy, and I therefore have to sacrifice going for one of those court bonuses. And that furthermore adds a little bit of like bluffing and cat and mouse to the court, which is very thematic. Like, did he put that spy there because he's going to challenge me for this goal, or did he do it because he wants to use an espionage card? Right. So there's this great – and that, again, very thematic. It's court intrigue, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no, the – yeah, the the there's a couple cool things that I I really like the court system a lot. I like how it how it turned out, and um, you know one of the things with the court is that it, it it's not like any of the other territories in the game. The the spies that you put on the court never fight each other, and so the only way that they can leave the court is by you know being spent to pay for espionage cards. And so one thing that can periodically happen to players is that they dump a whole bunch of spies into the court to try to you know, fight for court dominance, but they tie for first or they come in second consistently. And in that type of situation, you're kind of screwed because you've dedicated a lot of your resources to this, um, this other source, potential source of bonuses and points, and then you're not getting it. So um, I find strategically, and this is, you know, something I try to tell players when they're, when they're thinking about, well, how do I treat the court is, you kind of want to think early on in the game whether you're going to go heavy into the court or not. Um, and if you go heavy, it can be useful to try to scare everybody else away from it early on, like just sort of a psychic intimidation. Like on the second turn of the game, uh, Tom put out, you know, all of his units into the court. He puts, you know, six six spies out, and he didn't even work. Whoa! <laughs> Has that happened? That seems crazy to me. Yeah, I, I, I've tried to play that sometimes, where I just basically, I abdicate the second scoring, that, that first scoring phase, and I just put all my units in the court, and then for the rest of the game, everyone's like, oh, okay, Hassan, he's got the court, we're not even going to worry about it. That's it's like it's I I have the emperor's favor. Don't even try to get in on this. I've got a lock on it. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that kind of intimidation I love because then that gives you just enormous flexibility the rest of the game. Because then you you know you can play espionage cards whenever you want, and and really people aren't going to be hassling you. But um, it is it is a tricky play because you're you're trying to read other people's intentions. You're trying to see well is anybody else invested in the card and. Um, am I going to get into an escalating battle there that's just going to waste my resources? And then these other players who aren't involved are just going to be reaping the benefits from that. I, I love, so in our metagame right now, and, you know, metagame is how any particular group tends to emphasize or de-emphasize certain strategies and how things have different importance that aren't necessarily really related to gameplay but have to do with the, the players' perceptions of things. Uh, right now in our metagame, everybody's terrified of the espionage cards. <laughs> so I love the idea of grabbing the court, and in, say, a three-player game, that would maybe scare away people from attacking you because they're like, oh, Tom's got a hand of espionage cards. He's got all these spies he can spend. I'm going to fight the other guy instead. So you've just put a strategy in my head that I want to try now. <laughs> Very good. No, totally. Yeah, and you know, and a critical element of designing that, that espionage system, which again was kind of a, a, a mid-development introduction where the, 
those spy master tiles. Um, you know, at the start of each of, uh, of the turns, each player picks one of these tiles, which is going to give them a special bonus or ability for the rest of that turn. And only one of them, the R&D one, is the one that lets you draw espionage cards. So um, often, often um, what happens with that, that metagame that you're describing is that after, you know, one or two games under their belt, players will just instantly, if they're the first player, they're always going to take R&D. And so everyone's, you know, anytime they have an opportunity to take it, they're taking it. But I think what um, further experience with the game sort of opens up is that those other Spymaster actions can, can be equally powerful, but you have to you have to know when you're going to use them. Uh, right, right, yeah. There are definitely some that are like, no one's ever going to take that in this in this particular game. Yeah, like I kind of like that some of them are entirely useless at some points. Right. It makes the choice easier. And it also makes it easier, by the way, in like a four-player game, to totally shut one of the players out. <laughs> like the three good ones are gone, you get one of these consolation prizes. You know, you get the set of steak knives. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so two more things I want to I touch on. Um, uh, first of all, so uh, going back uh, briefly to that, that simultaneous movement system, um, is there some sti- – well, I will say – for me, there is some stigma to any game that I open up and I see, oh, wait a minute, this requires a pencil and paper. You know, we have to write stuff down during this game. I immediately think of, like, hidden movement games, which I don't really care for. Uh, right. Was that... Uh, did, did, if I was a game designer, I would then be reluctant to do that because of my own reaction. Right. Uh, <laughs> so did you play with any other ways to do hidden movement? Uh, is... Do, uh, do you think, I don't know, do other people have that stigma about including a pad of paper? Uh, tell me about that aspect of, of Clockwork Wars and, and introducing that. Sure. So, I, you know, I think a lot of people have that same reaction you do. And it's a le- I think it's a, a legitimate concern um, that a designer has to, has to confront. I think one weird advantage I had uh, was... When I was first designing this game, this was you know back in 2006, 2007 when I was first starting the process. Is that was that was sort of I would argue um, at the very cusp of our of our modern board game renaissance that we're going through. And at that time, actually, I was playing board games, but not very much. Uh, so I went into my design phase for this game somewhat. Um, agnostic or, or you know, unaware of a lot of the sort of inherent biases or tendencies that board game players had. And I actually think that sometimes there's this, you know, fine balance whenever you're doing something creative of how much research do you do? Like if you do a lot of research into something, um, what you read about or what you watch or what you learn can sometimes influence your design maybe more profoundly than, than you want. And so mm-hmm. you're maybe losing some of that individual creativity that's coming from you yourself and, and maybe nobody else. Mm-hmm. And I had the advantage, I think, at that point of um, if I was leaning on anything, it was my old experience with Avalon Hill games. Like there was this old Avalon Hill game, B-17, uh, I, I can't remember, Queen of the Skies, I think. Queen of the Skies, absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, I loved that game as a kid. I played it to death, and it involved, you know, an enormous amount of pen and, you know, paper bookkeeping. You kept track of your crew, and, you know, every mission, you'd see how many died, and, I mean, it was a fantastic game. But to me, like, you know, and also I played a ton of D&D, right? So and if you play RPGs, 
the whole idea of pen and paper and keeping track of stuff doesn't freak you out at all. So, and by, by the way, Hassan, I think that's where the stigma comes from amongst like yeah. uh, uh, tabletop gamers, is they think, oh, that's something you have to do in D and D. That's for <laughs> that's for kids who are doing touchy feely RPG. Maybe, yeah, maybe, so. maybe you're right. Yeah. So you know, when I so when I first started coming up with the idea of pen and paper, it just it didn't it didn't strike me as a problem at all early on. And it was only, you know, years later, once, you know, I had gotten the prototype off the ground and was showing it to people and prototyping it and playtesting it, that I saw that reaction in a lot of people. Like, like you said, that it's, it's usually at the very beginning when you're pulling it out and you throw the pen and, and, and pad in front of them and they're like, what? Oh, God. Yeah, you're going to need a pencil for this game, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you can, they immediately start looking elsewhere, like, oh, how did I get, you know, tied into this book? <laughs> Um, and I'd be like, no, no, just go with it, go with it. And and fortunately, I've had this experience now, you know, quite a bit. As soon as players, you know, realize that it's the basis of this hidden deployment system and it gives them this sort of massive flexibility and the game is very much about, you know, guessing and seeing what your opponents do, they forgive it. You know, the vast majority of players are like, oh, I get it. Yeah, this is this is awesome. Um, yeah. The The first version of this was not, was not really uh, fully pen and paper. It was, um, have you ever played Fury of Dracula? Does that, does that ever? Oh, yeah. Yep, absolutely. So, you know, like in Fury of Dracula, it's this game where one player plays Dracula, the other players are playing sort of the, the monster hunters and they're, they're going after him. And Dracula has like a little mini map of, of Europe in front of them. And they use that to sort of guide their, their movement. And that's how they do the hidden movement in that game. And, I had a similar system in the early version of Clockwork Wars where each player had kind of a mini map behind their play screen of the of the map and you, that's where you would assign your orders and then you would drop your play screen and put them out on the map. But as as you might guess what that did is it limited you to only be able to play one one kind of map basically. Um so it was Oh yeah, right, right, of course. The map, yeah. the map design, you know, like in Fear of Dracula, you're always playing in Europe and the map never changes. But as soon as I realized I wanted to have variable maps, not just in terms of composition, but also in shape, I really like the fact that you can make whatever shape map you want in this game. I was like, okay, I, I need to move to a different kind of system. And I was like, oh, well, Avalon Hill had numbered hexes. I'll just do that. You know, and so it was like that, that, that I just, and I just went with it. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, uh, I haven't tried, um, I'm a little worried about the. I think it's a variant in there, or maybe you just say you guys can do it if you want. But uh, you can build a map. You can like hand out texas, te uh, hexes, and then build the map one tile at a time in like round robin fashion. Um, I feel like that would decide too much of the game too early. Yeah. Uh, and, and maybe I'm just scared. Like, basically, Hassan, I'm scared to do that. <laughs> uh, have you had much experience with people building the the random maps at the beginning of the game, and how has that turned out? Yeah, I think I think you're right in that it can it can lead to just devastatingly terrible game experiences. But but <laughs> what I've seen from some uh, I I love random maps. That's actually my preferred way to play the game now. But what I what I've seen some people do is they'll they'll say like, look, we're gonna we're gonna pull. Um, two tiles out of the bag and then place one and then the other player gets to place it somewhere else. So they come up with some kind of system where it's not 100% random, it's kind of pseudo-random and there's maybe some movement of tiles that the players can do to ensure that um, none of the capitals are immediately screwed right off the bat. 
Uh, right. But, you know, I, I see this is, again, it sort of comes down to my philosophy of, of regarding balance in games, which is I actually really like imbalance. I think it, it's what feeds into narrative. So you're, if you're the Rhinox and you, you have a capital that's surrounded by this barren wasteland and, you know, um, the, the only thing that's near you is like one shrine and that's all you've got. Uh, it, it's like you can create a story out of that. Yeah, you're you're going to be the underdog this game, but just you know, just go with it. So then, if you win, you feel even better. And I'm kind of okay with that. And I I, I like that this game off affords those types of experiences. I, I'm thinking too now, Hassan, how that might feed into meta game. Like we have one player who. The guy's an absolute machine. I mean, he's got some kind of calculator in his head where he's constantly figuring. And if we were to build a map and he was one of four players, everyone would be sticking their barren tiles around him. So it would be a balancing mechanic. You know, our meta game would start with him being handicapped because everyone would build the map against him. I like that. Yeah. Uh, okay, so finally, the last thing I want to hear about um, the the gen- uh, are they called generals, the, the three units that are in ev- that are always available. Yeah. Generals, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, so the the generals. There's always a steam tank, always a guardian, always a leviathan. Um, why are they there? Uh, why are they the same? And why did you even bother to give us a leviathan mini? <laughs> and by the way, do you know why I'm asking that? Yeah, totally. Like, yeah, because it's never on the map. It's a token to say, hey, I can use this power, yeah. basically. Well, you put, you put it on the map just for that moment of satisfaction. and then I, Right, the visual impact of this worm is eating everything here, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, have, um, I guess I have two answers to that. So one is... Um, I, again, it was sort of an early inspiration for the game. I, I told you I was I was uh, I was I was drawing a lot from real time strategy games when I was coming up with Clockwork Wars. I, I think that's where this whole idea of thinking about fog of war and simultaneous action really stemmed from. Um, and one of the the RTSs that I maybe it's my favorite RTS of all time was Battle for Middle Earth um, two. And I was I was playing it a lot at the time. I really liked it, and I liked. You know, I like. I think a lot of people who play RTSs like God powers, basically. You know, like you 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 research something, and then you're just sitting on it. You know, you're you're waiting for that moment when you're gonna summon the Balrog or whatever, and and then it has kind of like this devastating impact on the game, and then it's gone, right? And it's it's very much an issue of like when you're gonna go for it or if you're gonna go for it. Um, so the the genesis of the generals very much came out of that that conceit from RTSs of the, of the Uber unit that you would research. Um, and if there was a twist to it is that, you know, the, that all three are available for all players from the beginning of the game. I think it also sort of gave a, a backbone to the variable discovery trees. Like you don't know what nine discoveries are going to be out, but I want to ensure that in every game, there's one highly offensive unit, basically a nuke, you know, the Leviathan, there's one highly defensive ah. discovery. Um, and then there's one, mobile discovery. And so it was it was to ensure that there that those three things, you know, would be present in every single game. I, I wondered how much of it was because this has happened a few times in our games, uh, where someone's saving up like there's a race for like an arms race for one super powerful discovery. Uh, and one player gets shut out of that race, and, and he's like, well, fine, I'm just going to spend those resources on, on this steam tank and come kick your ass with that. Right. Uh, almost like a consolation prize. It's an awesome consolation prize. Right, right. But uh, you basically... That, by the way, is another rule we got wrong in our first game, uh, is that unspent tech is worth uh, a victory point. Right, right, um, right. So it, it, at that point, I was thinking, oh, you know, all this extra tech, if I get beat out for this 
this discovery that I want, I've just wasted all these turns. But no, you get victory points for those. But <laughs> they can also you can then shunt them into buying one, one of these generals. Yeah, which is all absolutely. Fun. And I, I, yeah, that was that was that was something that um, you know once we started playing with the system, it was like, oh yeah, that's that's another function that these can play. Is if someone gets beat to one of these discoveries, they're not going to feel like, oh, I just lost the game. Right. Like, oh, right. That that was that was the whole thing I was going for. Um, my strategy is defeated. Like now, you can go for one of these. Right. Um, uh, yeah. So, Hassan, I, I wanted before we close. There's a couple of sort of like uh, like uh, personal things I want to talk about with you in terms of your your background. And you mentioned RTSs, but uh, to wrap up our Clockwork Wars discussion, uh, it, it's widely available. Correct? Like it's not something. It was a Kickstarter, but it's still available for anyone to buy. Correct? Absolutely. Yep. Uh, and you guys have a great little uh, add-on for it. Um, and you guys also, by the way, I, I always love this. That box is awesome. Yeah. Like, it, it's huge, but it is so well organized. Like, and, and even a lot of times you'll get a game, and then later on you'll go ahead, you'll like it, so you'll get the expansion, and there's no room in there. Uh, I love how easily the expansion fits in there. I love that it's got a little plastic top that sort of goes on top of everything. Uh, it's such a neat, snug, tidy, well thought out package. Cool. Yeah, that's that was that was totally Eagle and 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 Rick, especially the head of Eagle. He was like, "We're gonna make, we're gonna make a great box. We're gonna make a great insert for this game." You know, um, we kind of live in the age of of expensive designer board games, right? Um, and so, if if someone's gonna shell out the money for something this big, it, sure. it's got to be really nice. Right. Right. So, uh, Clockwork Wars, widely available. I encourage folks to get it. You will have, by this point, read my coverage at, at quarter to three. Um, Hassan, before I let you go, I cannot tell you how big of a grin I had on my face when you were talking about Battle for Middle-Earth 2, <laughs> because as, as a real-time strategy game enthusiast, I, I loved that design. I loved that game. Furthermore, and this is kind of weird, that was the game that got me into Tolkien. Like, I, I'd, kinda, I'd read the books in, in high school, and they were fine, whatever. I was into D&D. When the movies came out, believe it or not, they'd completely bounced off of me. I was like, yeah, whatever, I don't, this isn't working for me. Uh, as a real-time strategy enthusiast, though, when Battle for Middle-Earth 2 came out, I just loved the design of that. There were so many things I loved about it that it then got me curious about okay, who are these Rohirrim? Let me go back and watch this movie. Uh, you know, what's the deal with these orcs? What does this god power mean? So, right. weirdly enough, I got into the movies and later the books and the mythology from a, that, that RTS uh, based on the strength of its design. The design got me interested in the, the narrative. Uh, so, uh, do you still play RTSs? Um, and, and what are some that have been highlights for you? You mentioned Battle for Middle-Earth 2. Um, yeah. What are the ones? Yeah. Yeah. I. You know. I don't play them anymore. Definitely. I. I think um, RTSs have really suffered. I think over the past. You know. Whatever. Seven years or whatever. But. Um, you know. I. I. I still love Rise of Nations. That's. That's definitely one of my all-time favorites. And I. And I. I was pleased when they came out with the. Whatever it was called. The. The HD version or. Um, that was released on Steam. And I. You know. And I got back into that. But. I would say that, you know, I've, I've moved away from RTS games in terms of my consumption of strategy on the, on the, on the computer and, and have shifted very heavily into, into turn-based stuff, especially, you know, I, I, I think I mentioned this even on the quarter of the three um, forums that, that this year, you know, I loved Invisible Ink, I love XCOM, I love that we're kind of in this 
heyday of these great, um, even, you know, indie small, small sort of turn-based strategy games that are just so deep and so interesting. And I think it kind of informs this, not cross-pollination, but, well, you know, this idea of of a board game renaissance and a turn-based renaissance, I mean, I think they feed into each other in a way. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, it's it's super easy. Someone who's into Invisible Ink to sell them on a board game, you know. Yeah, so uh, I, I love that. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I think we live in. I mean, this, I mean, this is going to sound maybe stupid and pretentious, but I, I I really do think we're living in our in our renaissance for games. You know, like you, you know, you can say, well, literature had maybe you know you know early mid twentieth century was you know maybe a height for literature, you know, or you know, classical music had its had its renaissance. Science had its renaissance, and I think we're very fortunate to be at this time when um, you know we're among the giants in our in our in our field in terms of game design. And as consumers of of games, it has never been better, and it's just getting better. So I I don't think that's pretentious at all, Hassan. And the way that I would put it is. Uh, I'm a huge movie enthusiast, and the 70s were a unique period in, in cinema in that uh, a lot of people think of it as the, the zeitgeist of Vietnam informed the 70s, and that's that's certainly the case. But more importantly, the 70s was kind of the rise of the auteur director, like a director who had a unique vision, who wasn't just making studio product, who w- was making something personal uh, that had – where this unique vision was evident – in every frame of the movie. You know, that's where we got French Connection and Taxi Driver. That's where Jaws and Star Wars came out. Uh, I sort of feel like, uh, you know, Renaissance is a great word for it, but I kind of feel like with gaming, we are now what the 70s were to cinema, in that people with unique visions, whether through Kickstarter or through some publishers willing to take chances, uh, we have kind of the rise of the auteur game designer. Uh, You know, it used to be Sid Meier, was the only guy whose game name you really knew. But now people, even if you don't know their names, they're able to put these unique visions into these games they're making and, and get them out there. So, yeah, I don't think it's... I think what I said, Hassan, way more pretentious than what you said. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how did you... You mentioned that uh, you, you came to Eagle with this, and I, I think you started working on it in 2006. You came to Eagle with it in 2008. Uh before then, how how did you come to being a guy who brings a board game to Eagle? Well, you know, before that, it was uh, it, I've I've gone through I guess I would say two stages of board game design in my life. One when I was um, young, like middle school, high school, I you know, and, and that was definitely um, you know g- genesis from playing role playing games and designing board games just as a kid, and then you know college and grad school and job and all that really removed me from board gaming for, for many, many, many years. And, and the, all the gaming I was doing during that period of, you know, twenties and, and, and early thirties was, was computer gaming. And then, you know, I got back into board game, I, I think at a time when a lot of us did, which was the, the early two thousands. And it was when the European games were really starting to infiltrate America and fantasy flight started really taking off as, you know, a producer of just, you know, really big, fantastic board games. And so the American scene was getting much more exciting. And I I saw it happening. I had a little bit more disposable income um, and started getting into games. And and those sort of early cravings to build something of my own came back right away. And um, and Clockwork Wars, you know, I I was fortunate enough that the first – 
major design idea I had that I that I brought to fruition has actually you know come all the way to completion. So I'm um, mm-hmm. you know since since Clockwork I've come up with a bunch of ideas and and, and generated you know some prototypes, but this is the one that's you know that uh, it, it took off, and I think it took off because. I hit on something that was, you know, maybe a little bit different than than what other people had been doing, and, and so it has just enough innovation in it that it, it feels it feels exciting. And you're saying this is definitely not your last game. Like you have other ideas. You're you're still you're still you're still designing. I am still designing, and I'm and I'm doing it out of love. You know, not as a career. Uh, I, I know I I meet a lot of other designers at cons that would love to make game design their their full time job, and I'm not in that situation. Um, so I, I feel like I'm in a good space where it's it's a very important hobby of mine, and I would love to keep publishing games, and I'm, I'm not going to stop doing it um, because it's good for me mentally and psychologically. But uh, if I if I never publish another game, it's all right, you know. That's all right. That's fine. Uh, out of curiosity, if you don't mind me asking, I think you mentioned before we we spoke that uh, you teach. Is that is that your 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 day-to-day job is you're a teacher. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a professor at uh, Skidmore College, so I'm a I'm a neuroscientist uh, and a psychologist, and so yeah, I, I spend most of my time, you know, working in the lab and, and prepping lectures and stuff like that. But um, game game design is a is a great way to to blow off steam and and just use use my head in a different in a totally different sure. way. So. Sure. Uh, do you have a regular board gaming group? Do you do you tend to, do you get to play board games? Much? I do, yeah. Um, and really, that that's taken a lot of work. I, again, I'm sure a lot of people have the same experience, which is, yeah, you know, to get a regular group growing of of, of people that are willing to set aside that time every week or every two weeks, um, you've really got to stick at it, and you've got to you know sometimes reach outside your comfort zone and find people. Yeah. Um, uh, but right now, I have a great group of guys. Yeah, and we. We get together every uh, probably every two or three weeks, and we've been playing Blood Rage lately, and we've been playing Clockwork Wars, and we've been playing a bunch of cool stuff. So, wait, is Blood Rage the Viking thing? What is that? It is, yeah. It's it's Eric Lang's, um, you know, your newest biggest game that uh, that um, that I agree with a lot of people was one of the the best releases of this past year. So, oh, that's good because I I have um I I confess I had sort of mentally dismissed it as a Warhammer game. Uh. Uh, for some reason, I think there might be one with a similar title, but yeah. So, so you recommend Blood Rage? Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm obviously a fan of what I would call these these hybrid, um, you know, conflict games, right? So, things like Cyclades or Kemet or um, you know, Clock mm-hmm. Wars, or or I would even put uh, Tammany Hall in that in that category. So, these games that are have like nice streamlined euro elements, but are also really about beating each other up straight in the face. And mm-hmm. and Blood Rage is definitely all about that. Good to know. Good. I always appreciate a tip from someone who uh, who I think has a solid handle on how to design a good game. <laughs> it's always. Uh, is there anything else in in the regular rotation for you guys? Um, in the regular rotation, yeah. You know, we have like I said, we have that terrible habit, or at least I do, of. I was wanting to introduce something new to the group, you know, and, and for me, it's partially research too, right? Like I, one reason I like to play games is because I do learn a lot from playing them. And I really, mm-hmm. I really feel that there are so many fantastic designers out there that I'm always, I always want to sample what they do to, to see, you know, well, what can I steal or borrow from this, you know, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, 
but you know, yeah, I think lately we've been playing things like Evolution. Um, we played Blood Rage. Uh, we've we've been playing. We played a little bit of Test Lattison. But yeah, we're always trying something different. I, I love Evolution, by the way. Like I love how Evolution accidentally. I don't know about teaches you because you. I mean, I kind of knew some of these things, but Evolution. You could call Evolution like an educational game, right. which would be totally a slam. You would never want to call any game that. Right. Uh, but I love how it expresses these scientific principles in, in gameplay. Like, they, they did something really clever with that game, I, think, I feel. Yeah, I think yeah. it's a brilliant game. That's a, that's, a, that's a great example of a game that um, is, is so easy to teach. Like, you can teach yeah. that game in, like, you know, ten minutes. Um, the trick is that... Uh, like like you know like magic or whatever that every card kind of breaks the rules and so there's that that kind of overhead but it is it is really clever and really quick and um, and super interactive too like I love how it might look at first like a tableau game like everybody's making their own species but you know once you throw a predator into the mix like a yeah that the the blood and feathers fly yeah, yeah. we had a, a guy in one of our last games he just he just had one species the whole game and he made it a super predator and he he didn't end up doing particularly well but he was a spoiler for everybody else so it's 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 a game that lets you have kind of funny you know narratives come out of it Right, exactly. He was the T-Rex with a bunch of little mice running around his feet. And yeah, and it starves to death or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, Hassan, um, thank you for hanging out with me today. I've really appreciated uh, talking to you. I, I love what you've done. Um, congratulations, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Hey, I appreciate it. And, you know, I'll just say this. I've been, I actually have been reading your stuff since, you know, the, the Tom versus Bruce, you know, columns in computer gaming mm-hmm. world. So I, I feel like Tom Chick has been a part of my gaming life for the past, you know, 15 years or so. So it was a, it was a thrill to talk to you. Thanks very much. That's very kind. Uh, in that case, please move to Los Angeles and join our regular uh, gaming <laughs> group. See if you can get like a transfer out here or something. When I review games and even just talk about them generally. My feeling most of the time is that it's not up to me to discuss price. The cost of a game, that's between you and your wallet. I don't know what $20 means to you, or $30, or $70. What we share in common, what I do know is important to you, is we're all going to have our, what, 60 years or whatever on this earth, so we all share a common pool of time. So therefore... For me, talking about a game, it's more important to talk about whether it's worth your time. Uh, However, I do want to mention briefly, Clockwork Wars, not an easy investment. Uh, If you read my review at quarter to three and you go down to the bottom of the page, there's a link to buy it from Amazon.com. Where if you do that, by the way, it supports quarter to three. I greatly appreciate that. That's true of all the game reviews. Um... And there's a big old price next to it of $73. How often do you see that appended to a game? Uh, I think you could probably get it cheaper at Cool Stuff Inc. But basically, this is a $70 game, just the base set. Um, You can think of it as, I think you might call these prestige games, um, where they're big, huge boxes with really nice components, and when they sit on a shelf, they really sit on a shelf. They take up a big spot. Uh, so, I, I, Clockwork Wars is expensive, and I just want to say 
like a lot of times you buy a board game, you'll get it to the table maybe twice, and then it sits in the pile of stuff that you haven't played in a while. Maybe two years later, you'll play it once. Um, that's assuming you're like me, and you've got a respectable board gaming collection. So, do you really want to pay a lot of money for something you're only going to play once? And generally, no. Uh, again, it's between you and your wallet, but for the most part, that's something that I have to consider. Uh, I don't, by the way, get my games free. I, I buy most of them. Every now and then, I'll be sent a, a reviewer copy. Uh, but for the most part, I have to pay just like you. So I have to think, do I want to spend money on a board game that might only come out once? So I, one of the things I do want to say about Clockwork Wars is because it's short, because it's well-paced, because it's super modular and therefore different whenever you play, each time you play, I feel that Clockwork Wars is a game that you can get to the table many, many times. Um, uh, it, so this basically is my way of saying I kind of feel like it's worth the money. Assuming you can afford that, it's worth a $70 investment. Uh, so I realize it's an expensive game, but rest assured, I, I think that if it's the kind of game you like, if you enjoy Clockwork Wars, you're going to enjoy it way more than once or twice. Uh, however, that said, if you want the complete Clockwork Wars experience, the, the base game is 73 something $70. Uh, there's an expansion for it called Sentinels, which adds a fifth faction. It adds new cards, new discoveries, new espionage cards, new discoveries, which are like the text. Um, I really like some of the stuff in senti Sentience? Sentinels. Sentinels. You know what? I'm going to actually check the internet. Bear with me. Sentience, yes. The expansion is called Sentience. It's $30. Uh, for basically new stuff, and uh, I'm hugely fond of some of what's in there as well. You can also spend $15 to get little miniature, plastic miniatures for the unique units that are otherwise just cylinders. Uh, that's by no means necessary. Uh, you can buy, I think, these additional tiles that add new types of terrain, because the map is entirely module. You build it modular, you build it before a game starts. Uh, you can put a, sink a lot of money into Clockwork Wars. So, you know, that's a tough question, uh, as I said, between you and your wallet, but I, I think it's worth it. So, there you go. I definitely am going to bat for this thing. If you end up buying it, and you're like, oh, Tom Chick, you're crazy, this is a terrible game, I apologize, and if we ever hang out, I'll, I'll buy the first round of drinks uh, as way of penance. All right, so thank you for joining the Quarter 3 podcast this week. We will be back next week with video game stuff. As I might have said before, I, I'm really into board games, but I don't want to run off people who aren't into board games. So at least every other week we'll do video game board game coverage. Mostly video games, but sometimes, no more than every other week, we'll be talking about board games or with board game designers. So come on back next week for some video game talk, and uh, we'll see you then. If looks could kill, they probably will. In games without frontiers, war without tears. If looks could kill, they probably will. In games without frontiers, war without tears.